Pastor Robin. Take your Bibles, if you would, this evening. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Titled tonight's message is The Benefits of Wisdom in Our Life. The Benefits of Wisdom. I don't know about you, but the longer I live, the more I realize I need wisdom. Need wisdom. And God wants to give us wisdom if we'll ask for it. We know that from the book of James. But the benefits of wisdom in our life in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Now, who in the world do you think this is up here on the screen? Anybody got a guess? No, not King James. Who's that? Jonathan Edwards? No. But you're getting, getting kind of closer. Not John Adams. Kind of looks like him, though. Same kind of hair. It's J.S. Bach. J.S. Bach. I don't know if you listen to any classical music, but he composed over 200 cantatas for the church. Uh, he did uh, lots of songs, of course, focused on the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Composed over 20 children's songs, which taught biblical truth. He lived from 1685 to 1750. And a large number of his documents have been preserved over years, most of them musical compositions. Another uh, document that was uh, preserved, or book that was preserved, was his Bible. Actually, it was a three-volume German Bible published in 1681. It was actually what we would call today a study Bible, because it had commentary and sermons by Martin Luther in it, uh, who launched the, the course the Protestant Reform Reformation 100 years before that. Uh, he was a Lutheran, and, uh, and uh, of course, he studied the Bible uh, diligently. But interesting enough, and reason why I bring him up tonight, if all the notes in his Bible, the most notes, the most underlined, is this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, because he really wanted to have a good name. He wanted to be right with God. And of course, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. And uh, so he, he cared about that and thought much about this chapter and wrote a bunch of notes on this chapter. Interesting enough about some of his pieces of music, oftentimes you'd find in, in the margin of his some of his works the, the words sola de gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. Uh, but Interesting enough, also, him and his wife had 20 children, 20 children. Uh, ten of those never reached adulthood. Ten of the 20 never reached adulthood. And so he had to trust God. He had to depend on God. And another one of his favorite sayings in the notes of his works was, Jesu Hava, which means Jesus help me. And of course, he had to rely on Jesus, I'm sure, through the good times and through the difficult times of life. As we come to Ecclesiastes tonight, we realize that Solomon, for nearly 70 years, uh, lived a very interesting life. He was a man who was given uh, wondrous gifts, as we've talked about on several occasions, by God. Uh, during that dream or vision he was given, he didn't ask for stuff. He didn't ask for things or money or or great power, nobility. He asked for an understanding heart, and because of that, God gave him wisdom. The greatest, the wisest man that ever worked the earth, human being, and he got power and glory and, and, and of course, and, and many other things that went along with that. 
But the end of, he's coming now towards this part of, of his uh, book, the third book that he wrote, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, now this last book, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. And of course, he's going to use some of the same words that he's used in the past. And we're going to look at these words. We've seen the, the importance of uh, the word vanity. In chapter 7, verse 15, all things I've seen in the days of my vanity. Basically, Solomon's saying, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen everything. He's used this word many times as we looked at. And basically, it means things, does, things to this point does not matter. Remember, he's, he's had all these different things happen. He's had the greatest things happen in life, and he's had the most tragic things happen to his life. And he comes to the conclusion oftentimes that things really don't matter. Uh, he's, 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 sometimes people perceive him as frustrated. Uh, sometimes people perceive him as one who is elderly and gets to, gets to the point in life. We realize a lot of things in life that we think are so important are really not that important. The older you get, you realize the trivial isn't that important, is it? The, the things in life that we, that we clutch and clamor over, the things that we have to have really aren't have-tos. They're wants instead of needs. He goes on and says, Ecclesiastes 7, 15, There's a just man that perish in his righteousness, there's a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. He's basically saying godly people, young and wicked people, uh, godly people die young and wicked people live a long time. It doesn't seem like that's the way it should be. You see, because <laughs> yeah, we, we're supposed to, as the Bible says, and we looked at it in Exodus uh, chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments, if you honor your father, it's the only uh, command with promise that we're supposed to have long days. We believe that. And, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Children, obey your parents to the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, that may be well with thee, thou mayest long upon the earth. Same thing as we read in Exodus. Same thing as repeated by uh, Moses in Deuteronomy. I don't know if those verses terrified you as a kid. <laughs> you thought to yourself, you know, if I, if, if I don't obey mom and dad, I might not live very long. And there, obviously, there's some truth to that, right? There's some truth to that. But generally speaking, and we say generally speaking, avoiding sin and rebellion in life is going to keep you from dying an early death. But that's not always true. And we always know, we, and we know the exceptions for that. We know people who seemingly, though we don't know everything about them, lived righteous lives. I mean, they seem to, you know, they do everything right. You know, they take their vitamins, they exercise, they work hard, and yet their life, for whatever reason, and we don't know, is cut short. Then we know other people who seem to live wicked lives. I mean, just dastardly lives. And it's sometimes almost in public, and it's if they don't even care that other people know it. And they seem to live long lives and not care, live frivolous lives and not care. I think about, remember George Burns? Remember him, the guy who played God, smoked a cigar every day, but lived way up into his 90s? You think, well, man, that, that guy, man, he blasphemed and, 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 and just wicked and did things probably not should, should have done. He lived a long life. Things don't always work out just the way we think they're going to work out, do they? Solomon is essentially saying that life does not always seem to play out by the rules. Without an understanding of God's sovereignty, 
as he points out earlier in verse 17, you might end up with the wrong conclusion. Look at verse 16. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither thou be foolish. Thy, thou shouldest, not, shouldest thou die before thy time? Now, at first glance, it may appear that Solomon is telling you not to get carried away with trying to live a holy life or trying to live a wicked life, but to be somewhere in the middle. But actually, as you study this a little more, he's basically saying, don't be overly righteous, uh, outwardly righteous, and don't be outwardly, too, don't be outwardly wicked. Meaning, to be outwardly righteous but having no internal righteous does you no good. But, but to be wicked does you no good either. I think about the person who's outwardly righteous. Remember in the presentation of Pilgrim's Progress, Talkative? Oh, that was a, she, the lady who did that, young lady who did that, did a great job. And you can read that, of course, in full length in the book itself. But remember, she was outwardly religious. She, she said she would talk about religious things and also wicked things. But she was talking, if she was outwardly righteous, but there was no internal truth. And everyone has seen people in your Christian experience who talk a lot about God. But when it's time for like visitation or passing out tracts or doing th something at the church, you rarely see them because they're not real. They're kind of like, well, we, we're, we, we talk about God. We talk about God, but giving to God and tithing to God and living for God, that's, 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 it doesn't happen. It's not real. And so but what he's saying is don't, don't strut around like you're some type of spiritual giant, but don't live wicked either. Sometimes we can get so sanctimonious, so sanctimonious, as one writer said, these sanctimonious saints are eager to impart to lesser mortals their knowledge of Scripture. Their quiet times are always noted. Their marriages are rapturous. Their children are superior. Godly events speaks audible to them, and they are eager to tell you what God told them. Their applications of the Bible for every situation are bulletproof. Just ask them. Solomon isn't telling us here in verse 16 to be slightly spiritual. He's telling us not to present ourselves as having arrived. Of course, Paul talked about that as well, that he had not arrived, that he was still seeking after, that he was trying to attain. He wasn't perfect. Look at verse 19. Wisdom strengthened the wise more than ten mighty which are in the city. One wise person's town is worth more than one ruler's or, or governor's. This mighty men, this mighty men means rulers or governors. One wise person is more valuable in their community than ten unwise politicians, possibly. That'd be good in a vote in an election year, wouldn't it? Now Solomon does Launch, he gives us, we're going to talk about and focus on the, the remainder of our time, five proverb principles, or actually, we're going to look at eight uh, principles through these sayings that essentially show us the behavior patterns of wisdom and how living a life of wisdom is so much better than living a life that's full of self. First of all, wisdom rejects pursuit of perfectionism. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The verb for doing good means continually, without interruption, does good and never sins. Never sins. Of course, we know that's not possible, right? There's no such thing as sinless perfection. You married folks know that pretty much pretty well, right? You know that pretty well. 
If you don't know that, just ask your wife or husband when you get home. They'll tell you your faults. You don't have to, you don't have to quandary about that. They'll tell you. Wisdom is when you understand your sinfulness in light of Christ's forgiveness. Perfection and holiness will not be achieved in this life, but our great longing to be like Christ. We want to, we, we want to go without sin, but, and that's, that's, that's a desirable, that's a, that's a good thing, but ultimately we know we'll never attain that until we, are, until we die or we're raptured, and that, that moment will be just like him. Secondly, Wisdom refuses to be paralyzed by painful criticism. Verse 21, also take no heed unto all the words that are spoken, lest thou hear the servants curseth thee. For oft times also thine own heart knoweth that, that thyself likewise has cursed others. The word here for curse can mean to dishonor, to slight, to make light of. This household servant in our culture will be that or that the other employee or classmate or somebody in the neighborhood, word gets back to you, or perhaps around the corner you hear that comment about you that's critical, it's condescending, it's cruel, it's crude. Simply put, when you hear things that people say about you, it hurts, doesn't it? And for those who are in leadership, and many of you in this room have been in leadership, some of you are leadership at work, some of you are the, the head of something, and obviously, leadership means you have more responsibility. And if you're a leader and have more responsibility, naturally, you're going to have more criticism. You're going to have more criticism. And that's part of it. And naturally, also, when someone criticizes you, you have to look at it for what it is. First of all, consider the source. Always consider the source. Who is the person criticizing you? There's a difference in sources, right? Secondly, there's usually some type of truth in it. Look for where there is truth. And set, thirdly, why is that person criticizing you? Is it out of anger? Is it out of frustration? Is there a reason why that person is being critical? Are they going through some difficulty, some hardship, some pain in their life? There's a saying that's true. Hurting people hurt people. It's true. Hurting people hurt people. When you're hurting, be careful about what you say about other people. Because when you're hurting and you're nursing that hurt, bitterness, difficult, you're going through some harbored hurt in life, some, maybe some bad news or some pain, it's very easy in that hurt to be critical of other people. That's why it's best to be very careful. The Bible says, He that keepeth his mouth and tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. Oh, there's wisdom in those words. There's wisdom in that. Be careful what you say, especially when you're hurting, especially when you're going through pain and suffering. Now, when you're going through pain and suffering, obviously you need to cry out and let people know that you're going through suffering. I meet people on a regular basis, even in this church, who are going through things that maybe nobody else knows about. And they'll come to me and they'll say, Preacher, I'm going through this. Now, sometimes they'll say, No, Preacher, I don't want nobody else to know. And naturally, because I'm their pastor, I'm not going to let anybody else know, not even my wife, if they don't want me to. But others say, Well, you can share it with my wife or maybe the leadership or something like that. So sometimes people are suffering in silence and you just, you just don't know. Maybe you think you know, and sometimes when people are going through it, you think, some, you, you think 
you think something's wrong, but you just don't know. And that's when, when, you, when you sense that something is bothering another person, whether it be in your family or people in the church, the, the wise thing is to do is go to those people humbly and, and, and with, in a spirit of meekness and say, how can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I pray for you? What's, what's going on in your life that you're, that, that you're struggling with? And hope and pray, and oftentimes they'll open up and share those things with you. It's a good thing. Remember, always take criticism with a grain of, of salt, and don't let it destroy you. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it get you disheartened. Keep going. Keep going. Ecclesiastes 7, 22, For oftentimes also in thy own heart knoweth that thyself likewise has cursed others. And the reality is, People sometimes are critical of you because sometimes you've been critical of others. Haven't we all had occasion of being critical of other people? So we can't accept no one to be critical of us because if we're honest with God and ourselves, we've been critical of others. Take the criticism. Someone wrote, I never worry about people who say bad things about me because I know a lot more stuff about me than they do, and I know how much worse I really am. That's the truth. Don't worry about what people say about you because you know the reality of it. We're a lot worse than what people really, really, really think of us, aren't we? Wisdom rejects the pursuit of perfection. Wisdom refuses to be paralyzed by painful criticism. Thirdly, wisdom recognizes the limitations of intellectualism. Verse 23, all this I have pondered, proved by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it's far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find out? According to the Bible, wisdom is a gift from God. It helps us have a relationship with God, but wisdom cannot be manufactured by human beings. Verse 25, apply my heart to know, to search, to seek out wisdom, to reason things, to know the wickedness of folly, evenness of foolishness and madness. In other words, I set my heart and mind on figuring out the human race and who I am and why we do the things that we do. And if you spend all your time doing that, you will go mad. <laughs> if you spend all your life trying to figure out why people do what they are doing, you will go mad. Dear fo folks, friends, let me try to help you. Focus on what, what's going on in your life and don't get so caught up and we're trying to worry about what other people are do, doing so much. It's nothing wrong to care and show concern. But dear friend, I don't know about you, I got so much going on in, in my life, I can't spend all my day trying to figure out what in the world all the problems of the people in the world are. Man, if I just focus on my, two, my wife, my two kids, and my two cats, that's a plateful right there. Especially those two cats. Trying to figure those two jokers out? Well, that's, that, that takes me a plenty. Of, that, that's an all-day job right there. I just do that on the side. <laughs> I think of Isaac Newton, the brilliant uh, man of 17th century, solved the laws of notion and university, universal gravity by the age of 24. He invented a calculus, discovered the laws of the tides, was the first to discover the light was composed of all the colors of the spectrum. For 200 years, his mathematical formulas and equations controlled the scientific thought. It was, he was the first scientist to be knighted by the crown. No, Newton was a creationist and a Christian and a committed, committed believer. He wrote years later, I've only discovered the edges of God's way. Now, if Isaac Newton, pretty intelligent man, could say, I've only studied, only, only grasped the edges of God's wisdom or God's ways, 
He said, there's an ocean of knowledge. I've been, I've been paddling into the shallows. If he's there, where are we at? I don't, I don't even have my toes in there yet. I don't even have my pinky toe in there yet. If he's in the shallows, I've not even gotten there yet. And anybody says they figure it all out, you just look at them and say, that person's immature. Because no one has figured it all out. We've just scratched the surface of the, what God has for us. Wisdom rejects pursuit of perfectionism. Wisdom refuses to be paralyzed by painful criticism. Wisdom recognizes the limitations of intellectualism. And fourthly, wisdom resists the worldview of hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is a worldview, a way of life that says the pursuit of pleasure is the greatest pursuit of life. People sometimes just live for pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We happen to live in a world convinced that hedonism is the only way to live. We see it in verses 26, 27, 20, 26 through 29. I find more than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, her hands are bands, who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this I found, saith the preacher, counting one to be found at the account which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made up man upright, but they have sought only my invitation, inventions. Solomon speaks highly of women, most through, of course, through the book of Proverbs. He actually uh, personifies wisdom as a woman in chapters 1, 8, and 9, but here... He's actually describing this, this woman, uh, this prostitute, which he talks about in Proverbs chapter 7, a couple other places in Proverbs, as being someone who's wicked. Well, Solomon is essentially saying that he went looking for love, went looking for, went looking for pleasure, went looking for companionship among, among women, and he found none. Of course, women had, what, remember, 700 wives and 300 concubines, which were basically house slaves. He found no pleasure in any of these. Nothing satisfy him. So what is he saying? Pursuing pleasure robbed him of true pleasure. In the relationship, a company of one woman, a wife, which is described in Proverbs 31, which, of course, it says, her, in her heart of her does a husband safely trust. You know, studies have been done that a one-man, one-wife relationship is the best type of relationship in all areas of, around and, and, and enjoyment and intimacy in, in every area. These people who say, well, you know, I can live, you know, footloose and free, can have many partners and many different wives and many different husbands. Oh, I, can I don't have to be married. I can do what I want. There is more abuse, more pain, more sorrow, more regret, more disease, more emptiness, more failure in that type of relationship. God's ways is the best way. God's way is the best way. He's created one man, a man, and a woman till death do them part. That's God's way. It's been God's way since Adam and Eve. It will always be God's way. It is the best way. Hedonism, living for pleasure, is always a dead end. When your flesh says to you, let's try this other way, it's lying to you. Your flesh is lying to you. When it says to you, look for another way of pleasure outside of the word of God. No, stick to what the Bible says. Stick to the truth. Don't follow the way of the world. Don't follow the way of the wicked. 
Don't follow the way of the unrighteous. No matter how their life looks, oh, they look like they're having fun. They look like they're having the times of their life, but it's hollow. Their lives are hollow inside. They have nothing. It's paste pearls. It's fool's gold. Go after that which is right and righteousness, which we find in the word of God. I heard of a, a testimony of a young woman who said, I hungered in life for love. I went for one relationship after another. I woke up one morning lying in bed with a man I met the night before. As I looked over at him sleeping there, I felt the most intense loneliness I've ever experienced. I realized my sin was creating and compounding rather than relieving the emptiness and loneliness in my life. I went to pursue what I knew about the gospel. I found forgiveness and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and what I've been searching for in men, I found in him. What she found was the only thing that will fit the God-shaped void. Because nothing else, not drugs, not money, not things, not stuff, will fit that God-shaped void except for Jesus Christ. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 1, Who is the wise? And who knoweth the interpretation of things? A man of wisdom maketh his face to shine. The boldness of his face shall be changed. Three added benefits as we close. First, first of all, wisdom will help you live uniquely. Who is a wise man? Who is a wise man? Well, it's asking, where are they? Listen, you have to how dare, how rare you'll become. If you seek God and the wisdom that you find in the word of God and live in the Christian life, you are a rare person. You're a rare person. Because everybody wants to seek knowledge. Everybody wants to have things. Everybody is focused on the temporal. But dear friend, wisdom from God is eternal. Truth by its very nature is singular. And all truth is God's truth. Seek truth. Seek wisdom. That which is above. Not with that which, not that which is earthly. Not with that which is temporal. Be someone who seeks wisdom and you will be a unique person. Secondly, wisdom helps you make decisions correctly. Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? Basically saying, who's got a solution, a reason, some discernment here? Life is filled with riddles. A wise person goes to God, thinks it through, prays about it, seeks wisdom, has a witness of the Spirit, doesn't make hasty decisions. Because the fools, as the old saying so, fools rush in. No, a wise person prays, seeks God, seeks counsel. That's what we ought to do in any decision in life. Not call in on, not, not put a question on social media. <laughs> not, 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 not look at Dr. Phil. Not to phone Oprah or find out what my friends say. Not stick your finger in the air and find out which way the wind blows. No, friend. What does God say? A wise person will seek the heart and will of God for their direction in their life. That's what we ought to be doing. Seeking God's will for our lives. And letter eight, or eight, number eight. Wisdom will help you live more graciously. A wise man, a, a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Imagine that. Wisdom is going to show you, is going to show up on your face. Why? Because a person who's wise is going to live, is going to 
choose to live a righteous life. He's going to make right choices. He's going to choose to do right because there's, because he's going to follow the word of God. And he's going to, his face is going to shine. You're going to see a difference in the person who seeks only knowledge or only things or only stuff or only temporal relationship. Sin hardens a person. You ever seen somebody? You look at them, you say, you ask the question you probably shouldn't ask, how old are you? And they say to you, they're like 45 years old, but they look like they're 70. What is all that? Hard living. Hard living. Hard living shows on your face. It shows in your body. It shows in your language. It shows in your life. It had, there's, there's consequences to hard living, even for a Christian. You don't get away with the consequences. Now, thank God you can be forgiven. Thank God there's forgiveness for hard living. But, dear friend, there's consequences to sin. There always is. There always is. It says, how much better is to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding than rather to be chosen than silver. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the wisdom of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. What Solomon is saying, the most precious thing in life, it's not things, but wisdom. Pursue her, seek after her, desire her, long for her. Do you do that in your life? Going after wisdom is simply a matter of life and death. Left to ourselves, we'll pursue perfectionism. You try to pursue that, you'll just go crazy. We'll, become, we'll get paralyzed by dishonor and criticism. I'll never be good enough. I'll be proud of our knowledge and our intellect. I'll prove how smart we are. We'll get wasted in emptiness of hedonism. I'll never, I'll be able to, I'll just please myself by buying more stuff at the stuff mart. And you wind up having all that stuff, and your kids will take it, sell it for a quarter of what you bought it for, and somebody else will be wearing your shoes two weeks from now. That's what happens. That's why my wife loves thrift shops. She loves thrift shops. Because two weeks ago, somebody was wearing that, and they paid a whole lot of money for it, and she pays 25 cents. And she'll say, do you know how much I paid for that? And I try to guess high, because I want her to feel like she got a great deal. <laughs> uh, wisdom will draw you to your creator of wisdom. The giver of wisdom, the word of wisdom, which points to the gospel of wisdom. Jesus alone is perfect. Jesus took all the world's dishonor upon himself. Jesus is all-knowing. Jesus will forgive your sins, accept you into his family forever. I'll give you two testimonies, and I'm done. John Newton, of course you know him, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a redeemed slave trader, once wild, wicked. We know those words of that song, but he also wrote another much, much lesser known him. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, until a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath shall I forget that look. 
It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. My blood was for thy ransom paid. I die that you might live. And J.S. Bach, in his, in his waning years, got to the place where he couldn't read, could barely write. And his final lyrics that he composed were, Before your throne I now appear. Turn not your gracious face from me. A poor sinner... Confer on me this blessed end, Lord, that I may see you eternally. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I look forward to meeting J.S. Bach in heaven and so many other of these wise, wise saints that went before us. Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. I pray, God, you'd help us to seek wisdom with the whole world seeks to long for things that cannot satisfy. Oh, God, help us as saints, help us as Christians for long for things that are eternal, things that are higher, things that are nobler. These have allured our sight. Oh, God, help us not to long for paste pearls, for fool's gold. Oh, God, help us to long for a right relationship with you and to help others come to the truth before it's too late. I hope tonight you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but if you're here tonight you don't know him, I beg you before tonight's over, I beg you to come with, to me and I'd love to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, how you can be saved. 